Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me the book of Galatians, chapter 5. We're studying or we're sharing together on the fruit of the Spirit. And before I get into the specific fruit that Paul writes about, I do want to sort of backtrack and speak about one other aspect of this idea of walking or living in the Spirit. So if you would, look with me at chapter 5, verse 16. Paul writes, so I say, live by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit of God, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. We would hope Paul would have just stopped there. But those are just some of them and things like them. I think it's really uh, significant. He writes that. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against, and look at this, such things. He specifies these seven items or so, but he has other things in mind against such things as these and others like them. There is no law. Those who belong to Messiah Yeshua have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Now, the thing I want to focus on is something I mentioned last week, and that is three times Paul makes reference to living by the Spirit. Our text may say living in the Spirit or through the Spirit, but the idea is by the Spirit, through the empowerment of the Spirit of God who indwells every believer. He said that we are to live in the Spirit. He said that we are led by the Spirit. He talks about that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. Now, if you will, I just want to take you on a tour of a few things. If you look, uh, keep your finger here, but if you turn back to the book of Romans... Paul is concerned about this because he tells us in Romans chapter 8 that if the Spirit of God dwells in us, then we are His. If we have not the Spirit of God, we are not of Him. 
And that's what he says in Romans 8, one of the most wonderful chapters in all of Scripture. Therefore, there is now, one of the greatest verses, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah. Now look what Paul focuses on. He focuses on life in the Spirit. Though there's no condemnation, we stand guiltless before God. If we've acknowledged Yeshua as Messiah, if we've invited him into our hearts, if we have confessed our sin to the degree to which we know that and poured ourselves out before him and said, Lord, forgive me of my sin, everything I know, everything I don't know, everything I might do, everything that I've done, Lord, just take control of that and forgive me of that mess, cleanse me of it. Paul says there is now and forever no condemnation, for nothing can separate us, he'll say at the end of the chapter, of the love of God that is in Messiah Yeshua. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things that have been, nor things to come. Nothing. Anything you can even imagine. Everything you can even think about. He says, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah. And therefore, he can start the chapter by telling us, there is therefore now and forever no condemnation for those who are in Messiah. Michael will speak about our sin as being cast into the sea. Other passages will speak about our sin being as far from us as the east is from the west. Scripture speaks about God as forgetting our sin, even though we know that as the omniscient one, he knows all things, he forgets nothing. And yet, as it were, our sin is just cast from him. And we stand guiltless before the living God of the universe. How wonderful is that? I mean, you know that when you've ever been to a court and the judge decrees the individual is innocent, you know what a relief that is from an individual's heart and mind. And you and I have the greatest condemnation lifted from us. One day we will stand before the king of all kings, the judge of all judges, the Lord of the universe, and our sin will be cleansed from us. Our sin will be eradicated from our ledger, as it were. And the Lord will say, enter into the kingdom that I have prepared for you. And so in Romans 8, he tells us there's no condemnation, but Paul is concerned that our life would reflect that reality. Not by means of our own ability, our own energy, our own striving, our own determination to live differently than the way we lived before, although we are engaged in the process. What he's telling us is that relief, that freedom comes by living through the power of the Spirit of God. That's what Paul says in Galatians, live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. He tells us, be led, follow the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, what the Spirit of God is doing in your life, don't fight Him on those things. Surrender yourself to His working, keep in step with Him as He guides and directs. And so here in Romans, he speaks very similarly He says, because through Messiah, verse 2, the law of spirit and death has set me free from sin and death. 
For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. That's what Paul just talked about in Galatians, the works of the sinful nature. Now he's telling us what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. Look, God did by sending his own son. So he condemned sin. Why? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but what? According to the working of the Spirit of God in our lives. The way that we live a righteous life is not by the determination in our hearts to do differently than what we did, but by yielding ourselves to the work of the Spirit of God who's leading us, guiding us, and empowering us to such life. He goes on and on in this vein. Those who live according to the sinful nature, 8.5, have their minds set on what the, that nature, the sinful nature, desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds on what the Spirit desires. Look at verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit If the Spirit of God lives in you, and here's the truth, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Messiah, he does not belong to him. But if Messiah is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Messiah from the dead is living in you, he who raised Messiah from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, here it is again, who lives in you. Everything is about the working of the Spirit of God to produce the things of God. It isn't a matter of having a certain set of rules and regulations that will enable you to perform this. He told us the law is weak in that it cannot produce the things of the Spirit of God in our lives. The only thing that can produce the Spirit of God in our lives is the Spirit of God in our lives. And thus we must keep in step with Him. And so these are just two passages that speak of this. But check, check this out. If you turn from Galatians to Ephesians, the next book. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, because he's imprisoned in Rome, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So he says, I want you to live a life worthy. Now that word worthy, what does he mean? Does he mean to say live a life that you would earn recognition before God? A life that is worthy before God? So I need to work really hard at this so that God looks upon this life and says, well, he has done very good at living a good life. The word worthy is the same word from which we get the word worship. And so when he says live a life that is worthy, he means live a life that's worshipful before God. He said make your life a life of worship. But how do we worship God? He tells us by the Spirit of God who infuses us with his power that enables us to worship him as we ought. Remember what Yeshua said. We're to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. So when he speaks about living a life that is worthy of the Lord, he means a life that is empowered by the very working of the Spirit of God who's alive in your heart. If you know the Lord, the Spirit indwells you. If the Spirit indwells you, his desire is and his determination is to manifest himself in and through your life by his power. 
Try to frustrate him as much as you will. His will is that you will manifest those things. He will bring it about. You cannot frustrate him if the Spirit of God is alive in your heart. If the Spirit of God is alive within us, he will bring these things about in his time. That doesn't mean we're not to cooperate. We are. But we cannot frustrate God's work. We will be transformed by the working of the Spirit of God. And whether it takes an act of discipline or if it's the result of a yielded heart to him, his will will become evident in our hearts. For he's the sovereign Lord of the universe. His will will become evident in and through us. And it will come through a yielding of our ourselves to him. But now look at this passage one more time. He says in Ephesians 4, I urge you to live a life worthy, a life that is worshipful. We oftentimes think that there is what is known as the secular world and the sacred world. People look at pastors and they say, pastors, they're engaged in a sacred occupation. But those who are involved in, let's just say, the medical world, Or those that are involved in auto mechanics. Or those that are involved in whatever you fill in the blank. Well, that's secular stuff. But you know, the Bible doesn't speak like that. The Bible teaches us that all of life is sacred. Everything we do is to be an act of worship, which means everything we do is a sacred act. That is to be done to the glory of God. In honor of God. So it doesn't matter what you do. If you do it to the glory and honor of God, you are worshiping him in your life. And that's what Paul's concerned about. Now look at Ephesians one more time. Look what he says. That if we live a life worthy of the calling you have received. When he speaks about the calling we have received, he's talking about our salvation. The calling you have received is the call from God that has resulted in him forgiving us of our sin. Paul says in Romans 8, those whom he hath called are those that he has justified. And those that he has justified are those that he will glorify. When he speaks of being called, he's talking about God's call upon us that has led to our salvation. So when he says... To, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. That is to say, he's called us to salvation. Our life is to be a life of worship that can only be a life of worship as it is empowered to be lived by the Spirit of God. It always comes back to the Spirit. And look what the result will be. He says in verse 2, humility, gentleness, patience, a bearing with one another, love. He talks about keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Check that out and you will see the fruit of the Spirit are the things that he's talking about in Ephesians as well. So when he speaks about living a life that is worthy of our calling, he's talking about a life that is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, which produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Ephesians is talking about, but that's what he explained in Galatians. But now, if you will, turn over from Ephesians, take a look at Colossians. Two books further, and in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says in verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Those are the believers in Colossae. 
because they've given their hearts to the Lord, because of their faith and love that is springing up within them that he talks about in verses 3 through 8 or so. He says, for this reason, all the things that God is doing in your life and that, look at this, all over the world, the good news is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. For this reason, for the growth of the good news among these believers, he says, for this reason we have and have heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is, in essence, a prayer that the Spirit of God would fill them completely so that the knowledge of God, which is contained in his word, spiritual knowledge, would be embraced, understood, and obeyed. And so he says, this is what we're praying for. Look at this in verse 10. And we pray this. Why? That you may live a life worthy of the Lord. And you may please him in every way. In whatever it is we do. It's an act of worship. Whatever you do. That we would do as an act of worship. And therefore please him. And look at this. Bearing fruit in every good work growing in the knowledge of God. He speaks about being strengthened with the power of God. He speaks about having, look at this in verse 11, endurance, patience, joy, thankfulness. All of these things are, again, manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit of God. Some are specifically stated as fruit in Galatians. Others are things like that fruit that Paul made reference to in the book of Galatians. The point is a life that is lived, that is worthy of God, is a life that is lived as worship before him. And that worship must be an empowerment through the Spirit of God who will produce the fruit. Now, he told us in Galatians, but there's a battle because the sinful nature would want to squelch the manifestation of that fruit. And so we need to realize the significance of the battlefield. It is our souls. It is us. And therefore, either we will grow to be the kinds of men and women, boys and girls, the kind of people who exhibit the Spirit of God and manifest His character and His grace, or we will be seen as people who are manifesting the sinful nature that we are to be battling against. It is a battle. Paul says in Ephesians. But look at Thessalonians. Turn over one more book from Colossians. And if you look at Thessalonians, and you look at chapter 2, in verse, I think it's verse 12, but look at verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to say we've been holy, righteous, blameless. And Paul, who said, I'm the chief of all sinners, was able to say that. Why? Because the Spirit of God produced it in and through him. And so he says, you are witnesses of this, and this is incredible, so is God. And he goes on to say, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Get this? Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. And look at the calling. Who calls you into his kingdom and glory. 
Calling is unto salvation. So the big question is, are we living lives that are worthy of God? That is, are we living lives that are the result of the empowerment of the Spirit of God? Are we making choices that are in line with the nature and character of God and the working of the Spirit of God, which are described by what we know as the fruit of the Spirit? Or are we losing the battle? And we would be described as ones who are manifesting the things that are characterized by the sinful nature. That's the goal. That's what God wants to produce in us. How does he produce it? Now, this is what struck me. I don't know if this is a good connection or not, but it's a connection I sort of like. So if you turn in your Bibles to the prophet Isaiah, and I shared very briefly with you last time from Isaiah chapter 6, but this is an incredible chapter of God's call on Isaiah. His call to service, but it's a call unto salvation. And when we read of his call to salvation, in a sense, I think it exemplifies what Paul is telling us of the call to salvation and the fruit that is to be produced as a consequence of that call. In Isaiah chapter 6, it begins, Isaiah writes, beginning in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah was a great king in Israel. He was a good king. He came to the throne when he was 16 years old. He reigned for 52 years. You can read of him in 2 Chronicles 26, and I think it's 2 Kings chapter 15. And what's interesting about Uzziah is that as a righteous man of God, as a wonderful leader of Israel's people, he expanded the borders of the kingdom of Judah to that which David had expanded them to. But toward the end of his life, for whatever reason, the sinful nature, whatever reason, he determined that he was going to enter the temple of God and offer incense to the Lord. Now, on the surface, that sounds fine, except God had already told Israel that the only ones that could offer incense on the altar of incense in the holy place of the temple, outside the Holy of Holies, right? You know, the temple had two sections to it, the holy place and the Holy of Holies. The holy place had the table of showbread where it had a golden table with 12 loaves of bread that was changed by the priests every day. And it signified God's provision. Bread signifies provision. Give us this day our daily bread. It signified God's provision for Israel, for the 12 tribes, day by day, moment by moment. On the your left-hand side, my right-hand side, on the south side of the temple, the holy place, was the menorah, like we have here. The seven-branch candelabra that was to be kept lit always, never to go out, and it signified the dwelling presence of the glory of God upon his people. And then directly center, there was an altar, and behind the altar was this curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, within which was a golden ark, golden box, within which at one point were the two tablets of the law given to Moses, within which was the rod of 
Aaron that budded, signifying he would be the high priest, and inside was a pot or jar of manna, reminding Israel of how God provided for them during the wilderness wandering. And on the top were two cherubim, their wings met in the middle, and in the middle was a golden plate. And once a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies to dip or to sprinkle seven times blood of a sacrificial animal. But right before it was an altar. And on that altar was uh, coals and upon which incense would be dropped. And it signified as the smoke rose up, it symbolized the prayers of the nation of Israel. Uzziah wanted to offer up incense in the holy place, but it was reserved only for the priests. And so we're told in Second Chronicles 26... That as he entered the temple, the priests tried to stop him from doing that. They said, King Uzziah, you are sinning against God. Stop this. Four times in the section on his sin of going to light the altar of incense. What you would do is you would take the coal from the altar outside the holy place on the, in the courtyard. You'd take the coal, you'd take two buckets of incense, you place the coals on the altar, and then the buckets of incense were then sprinkled on the altar. And as the king was coming, the priests were trying to stop him, and finally, as they were trying to speak to him, a spot of leprosy breaks out on his forehead as an act of God's judgment. With that, the priests then grab him and thrust him out of the temple area. Four times, the text will mention, he was struck with leprosy. And twice, it will say, he had to live separate from the people, uh, alienated from the people of Israel until his death. Now, Isaiah tells us, in the year that he died, He died in isolation, though his body was later taken and put into a king's tomb. And he died from perhaps the most heinous of all diseases that could afflict the ancient people and certainly Israel was that of leprosy. Somebody with leprosy could not come into the temple grounds at all. Someone who had leprosy had to be quarantined from the people. Someone who had leprosy had to cover himself always. And whenever he'd come near other people, he'd have to shout out, leper, leper, unclean, unclean. This was the circumstances, the king of Israel, a good king of Israel, a righteous king who has said he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, was struck by God. Isaiah says, in the year that he died, Reflecting on the cause of his death and the circumstances that surrounded it and the context in which he died. It says that Isaiah saw the Lord. And notice the focus in Isaiah chapter 6. It is not leprosy, but it's the holiness of God. What an incredible contrast. The king dies of leprosy in which he's alienated from the very temple precincts. And when Isaiah, in a vision, sees the Lord, he focuses on the holiness of God. Now, I want to show you something. I had not realized this before, but if you look at verse 1, it says, I saw the Lord. Look at your text. You'll notice it's capital L, small o, r, and d. That's the word Adonai. 
usually refers, translated as master, ruler, the exalted one. But look, it says, I saw the Lord, Adonai, seated on a throne. But look at the seraphim, verse 3. As the seraphim are surrounding the throne and are calling out, perhaps antiphonally, we don't know how many seraphim there are. There could have been thousands. We don't know. Just says seraphim, there's more than one. Can't be less than two and can be as many as who knows. And these seraphim are saying, look what they say. Holy, 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 look, Lord, look at the word Lord. There the word is in all capitals. That's the sacred name of God. Isaiah saw Adonai, but the seraphim are calling him Yahweh, Jehovah, or whatever word you want to use to denote the sacred name of God. Is that interesting? You would have thought Isaiah would have been consistent. In the day that, I, that Uzziah died, I saw the sacred name of God used for the word Lord. And the seraphim were saying, sacred name of God, Almighty. That makes sense to me, right? Because that's what they're saying, and that's presumably whom he saw. But that's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, I saw Adonai sitting on the throne. And to Adonai, they said the sacred name of God, Yahweh, or however you might pronounce it. What I believe Isaiah is telling us by the use of these two different words denoting God is that he saw Messiah who is on his throne, who is God. And when he takes on human form, he's God that comes in the flesh. But what he saw was the Lord Yeshua in his glory. Now, you don't have to turn there, but if you looked at Psalm 110, David says the same thing. The Lord, sacred name of God, said to my Lord, Adonai, the use of the word Adonai. He says, and he said, sit at my right hand until I make the nations or whatever a footstool, however he makes that point. Talks about the exaltation of Messiah. Yahweh, David says, to my Lord. So who is David's Lord? He's the king of Israel. Who does he bow down before? And it can't be Yahweh in this context, although he would, because it's Yahweh who's talking to him. Yahweh is telling David, the Lord, David's talking, the Lord said to my Lord, and there we have Adonai, sit at my right hand. The one who is Adonai is addressed by Yahweh. And in here in Isaiah, the one who is Adonai, who is to sit at the right hand of Yahweh, is called Yahweh. So Isaiah is seeing Yeshua. By the way, if you look at John chapter 12, I think it's chapter 12, or it's chapter 10, verse 12, or 12, 10, something like that. Yeshua says, Isaiah saw my glory. And what does Isaiah say he saw? I saw the glory of the Lord. It filled the temple, the train of his robe. Now, you know, when a bride comes down the aisle, not always these days, but in the past, there was always a lengthy train. You need like 30 people to carry that train, you know, so we did. Well, God's train was so immense that it filled the heavenly temple, which is much larger than the Solomonic temple, which was only built after what Moses saw when he was on the mountain. 
the tabernacle and the temple were only a small reflection of the heavenly sanctuary of the living God. So how big was the temple that Isaiah found himself in in a vision? However big it was, we're not even talking about Messiah. We're talking about his robe filled the entirety of the temple throne room where he sat. And Isaiah is just blown away by this. And to boot, there are seraphim surrounding the throne, these six-winged creations of God. And I used to say, they don't have a lot of lines, but the lines they have, they deliver with perfection, you know? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's all they get to say. That's all they, you know, it's sort of like these actors on stage. That's all I say. The seraphim, that's all they say. But they deliver the lines perfectly every time. And notice, they don't just say, holy is the Lord. They don't just say, holy, holy is the Lord. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This is the only characteristic of God that's repeated three times. You'll never read anyone saying God is love, 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 though the Beatles did. Nobody, they didn't say God is, but nowhere in Scripture you'll see God is faithful, faithful, faithful. Nowhere will you read God is merciful, 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 though he is all of those good things. But you will read he is holy, holy, Holy. When given in triplicate, that is like the greatest means of emphasis that can be delivered in the Hebrew language. Can't do it anything more. I mean, you can say seven things, seven times, seven this, but triplet, that's it. When Yeshua says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, woe to you seven times, seven times in Matthew 23, that means be very careful. The judgment of God will fall. Book of Revelation, the angel, when the bold judgments, I think it is, The angel says and goes, woe, woe, woe to the earth. That's bad. It's bad if they say woe, but if they say woe, 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 it's really bad. (laughs) And so it's wonderful to say holy is the Lord, that's good, but holy, 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 that's like words cannot now describe the significance of that. And in their speech, even their presence is interestingly addressed. With two wings, they cover their face because they cannot look upon the glory of God. When Moses did, the afterglow of his glory was enough to disturb the nation of Israel. So that even these angelic beings whom God created for the specific task of circling the throne of God, he has to equip them with wings that will protect them from his glory. Isn't that gracious? With two of the wings, they fly, which means whatever God tells us to do, we'll be on it. And with two, they cover their feet, sort of, because they are creatures of God and distinct from him. And therefore, we really don't belong here, but it's wonderful God would allow us to be here. That sense of humility. And how does Isaiah respond to all this? Like his eyes must have been like, like, what? You know? And then he says, woe is me. 
He casts judgment on himself. Now, that's really significant. You know, it's, I don't have a lot of time to get into all of this. It's really significant because when prophets prophesy, they prophesy two kinds of oracles. They either prophesy an oracle of blessing and of promise and of hope, or they prophesy an oracle of coming judgment. And here Isaiah prophesies an oracle of judgment on himself. He says, woe, it would be great to say, woe to the Moabites, you know, woe to the Egypt. But he says, woe on me. He says, I am, my translation says, ruined. But a better word in the King James, I am undone. I'm just falling apart. Because I stand in the holy presence of God. And I I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a man of an unclean life. Remember what Yeshua said. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out. Where does it come out from? Our lips. And he's saying, my life is unclean. If Uzziah's life was unclean in that one moment that struck him with leprosy, I deserve even greater judgment because my life is a life of uncleanness in the presence of God. See, to hit you and I, Uzziah and Isaiah are righteous men of God. By our standards, they stand tall and high. And that's because while we may be aware of our sin, we are terribly tolerant of our sin. We say things like, well, it's just the way I am. We say things like, I can't help it, I'm a sinner. We say things like, well, it's a battle and I'm losing. But when we stand before the presence of God, there is no unqualified standard. All have sinned and fallen short, not of only our own standards, but of the glory of God. And when we stand before him like a righteous man, Isaiah, we will say, woe is me. Now, what does God do? God does not say, you know, it's really too bad, Isaiah. (laughs) He doesn't say, Isaiah, cursing upon you. He doesn't say, Isaiah, prepare yourself for the moment of judgment. He doesn't say, get out of my presence because I cannot dwell in darkness. He instructs a seraph. Remember what Uzziah did. Uzziah took the coal, brought it into the holy place, and wanted to put it on the altar for the altar of incense. But look, God tells the seraph to go to the altar, and the altar coals are so hot, the seraph can't touch them with his own wings or arms or hands or whatever. He has to take the tongues, and from that he grabs the coal. And like what Isaiah desired to do, what, the, what this seraph does, he takes the coal and puts it on his lips. Now, having hot stuff anywhere is not nice. But on your lips? I mean, come on, this is like one of the most sensitive parts of our body. And it's on the lips that he's told to place the coal. Redemption is a painful process. God does not just say, look, boys will be boys. Sorry, you know, Isaiah, I know how it is, and I'll let it go. No, no, no. Redemption is a painful process. 
Messiah endured the pain of alienation from God that you and I would not have to. It's a painful process. And the work of the Spirit of God to produce holiness, to produce the character of God, to produce the holy God of Israel in and through our lives is a painful process. That's why it's a battle. But God is determined that if his spirit is alive in you, you will become like him. One way or another, there is no other option than to be made more and more holy in his life. If you resist them, it will not be pretty. But you will come out the way God wants you, not the way you would prefer to be. But if you yield to him, it will be an ex- experience of his grace and of his mercy. And so what does Isaiah tell us? Look here, he says, the voice, uh, it says he puts it on his lips. And look at this, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. That, enough, that would be enough, wouldn't it? But no, God does even more. He says, who will go for me. Are you serious? I could never go for you. I could never be a representative of you. I could never be a manifestation of you to others. I could never talk of you rightly because I don't understand enough about you. How could you even ask who will go for me? Because there is no one qualified to go for the living God of the universe. But yet, God invites us to go for him. And Isaiah says, Hineni. You know, Moses says that when he's at the, the uh, burning bush, Hineni. Moses says that in the burn, burning bush. Isaiah says it here. There are a number of other places throughout Scripture where the, call, the response to God's call is, Hineni, here I am, send me. When Paul says, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, he's not talking about, get your life in order and do this right. He's saying, remember, it's the Holy One of Israel who has called you. Keep in mind what Isaiah saw. And the only way we can walk worthy is if the coal has been applied to our lips and we've heard the words, Your sin is forgiven. Your sin is atoned for. Then and only then can you go. But then and only then you must go. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says walking worthy in a worthy manner. Isaiah's worthy manner was to serve him as a prophet. Your worthy manner is to be a good husband, a good wife, a good parent, a good child. Your worthy walk is to be a good mechanic, a good doctor, a good lawyer, a good artist, a good musician, or whatever it is you do. That is the same response that Isaiah gave. Lord, send me, and I will be for you what you would have me to be as I do what it is you have me to do. Walk worthy which means through the empowerment of the Spirit of God through whom we have experienced the forgiveness of our sin. Walk worthy of this calling God has called us to to be his children. 
And what will it look like? It will look like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and all of the things like that as Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word to us. We are grateful, Lord, that you are gracious to us. And while atonement is a painful process, we have been spared that pain and agony. But one has endured it for us in our place. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to live lives worthy of the calling unto salvation that you've called us to. And that's only possible possible through the empowerment of your spirit. So, Lord, fill us with your spirit. Control us, we ask. Reign us in where necessary. Let out the leash where we can tolerate it. And help us, Father, as sent ones to make you known through our life and through our actions, through our words, through our deeds. May the peace of Messiah dwell within us, and may the words of Messiah, as Paul says in Colossians, richly dwell within us. For then the fruit of your presence will be the natural consequence. May we yield ourselves to this, we pray, in Yeshua's name. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.